0: From Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. The hegemony of the bourgeoisie, its culture and its values, is a central feature of our colonial and capitalist present. But what does it feel like to be a bourgeois subject? And what structures of feeling enable the dominant class of the colonial world order to function? Today, we talk with philosopher and critical theorist Henrike Kopeis about the colonial lives of bourgeois coldness. Henrike, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jonas.
0: Henrike, why do you think the bourgeois subject is cold?
1: Well, the bourgeois subject is cold because it can create a space in society for itself where it remains more or less unaffected by outside events. And I think it is a nice metaphor to describe this in terms of warmth and coldness because it really goes to the core of effective relationships with the outside. And maybe it's helpful to use an example from the start in order to explain a little bit further what this means in concrete social settings. So if we look at the situation in the Mediterranean in the past couple of decades, we have witnessed and we have seen a lot of catastrophes happening there with refugees and in general migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean from the African continent in order to come to Europe. And There have been so many shipwrecks that at some point it felt like a very normal thing to hear on the news or a very normal situation that people just didn't question anymore as something that just happened. And I think even though there were articulations of empathy and of compassion towards the refugees who experienced these catastrophes and the many deaths that happened there, the bourgeois class has always been in, you know, a privileged kind of like cut-off effective position that didn't force them to think about the structures that caused these catastrophes. Because it is important to notice that these are not tragic deaths that just happen and that nobody can do anything about But these are murders and killings that are caused by the structures and by the policies of European migration politics and border policing. And I think that in this particular example, it becomes clear how an outside and an inside are being separated from one another and how a posture, like a habitus of coldness towards the fates and the lives of others is being facilitated by this kind of separation.
0: Your example of the tragic deaths in the Mediterranean when people try to cross the ocean to come to Europe from Africa already points to the colonial makeup of our contemporary society. So you say the bourgeois subject in Europe has a posture of coldness towards what is happening there. That seems to point to some intricate entanglement of the bourgeoisie and colonialism. How do you see this entanglement?
1: I think we can tell the story of the entanglement in many different ways, and when we come back to this example that I just mentioned and explained, there's a political theorist, Ida Danevit and she's talking about an umbilical cord between the current situation in the Mediterranean that we experience and the colonial past, and this umbilical cord is the racialized setup and the racialized violence, racial violence that is present there, and. We can, of course, link this, and this has been done by many thinkers as well, such as Christina Sharp, for example. We can link the situation in the Mediterranean to the transatlantic slave trade, which both evoke images of black people drowning in the water while white people are responsible for the structures and the logistics that cause these kinds of deaths. So there's also the link, you know, that becomes very obvious when we just look at the optics of it. But then, of course, there are institutional as well as intellectual links that we can explore in different ways. So the institutional link, I think, that is most interesting is the politics of the European Union as one that always is proud to, you know, pronounce and to push ideals of the European Enlightenment. So if you listen to Ursula von der Leyen talking about migration, talking about the ideals of the European Union, it's always about human rights, it's about inclusion and about possibility for anyone But when we look at the concrete politics and the concrete material circumstances under which these possibilities are supposedly (laughs) or supposed to be realized, uh, then we see a different image. And I think it is interesting in how far ideals of the philosophical enlightenment and of a humanistic vision of the world are very present for the EU and are also being used in order to create a certain image of European institutions while the material circumstances are not being granted in order to realize that. And this is, of course, something that we find in colonialism, in European colonialism as well, you know, that there's kind of like a parallel movement of developing certain intellectual ideas of how everyone is equal etc etc but the realization of these ideas is built on racial difference and I think it's important to keep that in mind when we look at political conflicts and political catastrophes of the present.
0: When you tell it like this, it sounds as if this coldness as an effective posture is something that the Western bourgeoisie, as the dominant class in global capitalist society, that this coldness is a kind of way for this dominant class to function as the leaders of this global capitalist world by somehow insulating themselves also personally against the violence on which this system is based. Does it work like this?
1: I mean, yes, this is very much the thesis of my book and I think insulation is another very nice way to describe this because we can see in how far this dynamics of inside outside and the insulation of the inside from an outside for example becomes very very literal when we look at climate change for example you know which also has certain dynamics of bourgeois coldness in it we can observe that in Europe at this point we are not as much affected by the long-term effects of the climate crisis and therefore we can still afford to somehow not deal with the problem in an immediate manner. So insulation is what keeps bourgeois economy and bourgeois social structures in place while there's an outside where the material effects of the continuous privilege that these bourgeois societies have and produce and reproduce for themselves play out in like catastrophic ways. So this is just the very, very abstract kind of dynamics in which it works. And to become a little bit more concrete, I think the example of the climate crisis is one in which we can even say that there's some kind of like an air conditioning going on in bourgeois societies. So in Europe, we still have like we have the technological possibilities, the financial possibilities to mitigate what is happening and to mitigate very profound changes of the weather and of just like natural disasters unfolding, which do not exist in other parts of the world. And then again, it also becomes an economic struggle, which is always part of bourgeois society somehow.
0: At the same time, bourgeois subjects, members of the bourgeoisie, are not always cold. So you talked about these bourgeois values, democracy, human rights, and you have also people passionately advocating for these things. How does that fit with your analysis of bourgeois coldness as such a prevalent mode of feeling?
1: Yes, that's a very good question, because I'm interested in bourgeois coldness not so much as an unchangeable or, you know, once-for-all stuck kind of effective state that we can't do anything about, but I'm interested in bourgeois coldness as a technique. It's a technology. It's an effective technology in order to sustain the kinds of privileges and the forms of social reproduction that I just described. So in order to be cold, in order to, for example, be indifferent on a structural level towards the killings in the Mediterranean, towards pushbacks, towards murderous European border politics, there has to be a way that enables the bourgeois subject to still maintain itself and to still be able to look into the mirror, you know? And there are, I mean, there are so many values and virtues that are so important for the bourgeois class that it is very necessary to create a self-conception of a bourgeois subject that allows to integrate all of these different things. So that allows to integrate a structural indifference while at the same time thinking of itself as a virtuous human being that is compassionate, that cares about others, that is promoting human rights in the world. And I think the specific ways in which this works are very interesting in terms of also the separation of the social and the individual. So I think empathy is a very interesting emotion regarding that. It is possible to be compassionate and to care for the individual fate of certain migrants and to maybe even, you know, take in refugees, care for them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But often what goes along with them is the expectation for them, you know, to integrate, to accept German values, to accept what is being called German light culture and to adapt to what is expected from them. So in this kind of dynamics, we see that at the end of the day, it's really about the maintenance of this kind of like set of values and the position, the superior position of the bourgeois individual within this set and not so much about, you know, a universal idea of just material subsistence and the ability for people to live their lives as they wish. And I think this creates, of course, a tension and a contradiction. And bourgeois coldness is a mode in which this contradiction is being successfully mediated. And by successful, I mean that the bourgeois society and bourgeois individuals as well, of course, are still able to reproduce the conditions of life that they have chosen for themselves and that sustains their privilege.
0: What you are doing as a philosopher is scrutinizing, critically scrutinizing the bourgeois class, bourgeois values, bourgeois culture. And this project in the German philosophical tradition is uh, very much aligning with the critical theory of the Frankfurt School connected to names such as Theodor Adorno, Max Horkheimer, and I understand that you are also interested in this school of thinking of critical theory but at the same time your take is also a critique of critical theory. Can you explain that? It is
1: important to mention that the concept of bourgeois coldness is not one that I made up, but it is mentioned by Adorno and Horkheimer in the first instance. And by this concept, they describe something similar, I think, or, you know, something very close to what I want to emphasize by using it, but they are referring to a different civil catastrophe when they use it. They refer to Auschwitz and the Holocaust and they try to understand how a bourgeois society and the coldness in this society is on one hand a reason or a condition in order for such a catastrophe to form and for people to remain indifferent towards its unfolding And at the same time, how coldness is a necessary social condition in order to be able to live in a world in which Auschwitz is possible. So coldness is not only a bad thing that we should get rid of or that we should individually overcome, but it is a condition in order to live with suffering and to live next to suffering and to accept that suffering is something that that happens in the world. And I think I'm very interested in this ambivalence when it comes to Adonis and Horkheimer's conceptual framework as such. I think that it is necessary to extend the social pathologies, as it is often named, the social contradictions that they are interested in towards the colonial situation, Adorno and Horkheimer have, of course, analyzed not only German society, but also just the dialectics of European society in their book, The Dialectics of Enlightenment. And they have come up with a very profound analysis of human and especially European reason that contains, on one hand, the possibility for progress, the possibility for human societies to improve and to develop. And on the other hand, a certain idea of just ruling nature by this kind of reason that can also be damaging and that leads to very problematic ideas of progress. And I think that this conceptual setup is very much an invitation in order to understand colonial dynamics in these terms. And this is something that hasn't necessarily been done by the Frankfurt School or, you know, 20th century critical theory as such. And in order to do that, I chose to look at another intellectual tradition, which is the one of black studies, and also to the parts of that tradition that has also been dealing with Marxism and that has also been dealing with the economic contradictions that are not only the result or that, of course, are the result of the development of capitalism, but that are also interested in understanding how the development of capitalism has always been entangled with colonial power structures. And this generates, you know, an intellectual sphere or a theoretical sphere that very much allows us to understand how reason itself and in that format in which Adorno and Horkheimer have been interested in it is also colonial reason. And I think this is why, you know, the subtitle of my book is Colonial Subjectivity. And I'm interested in understanding in how far the bourgeois subject is one that carries forth a colonial subjectivity and a colonial form of reason that allows for it to maintain the social position that it has.
0: That sounds as if it is very important when you think about colonialism through the lens of critical theory, as you say, also to widen the canon and read different authors who have in the past not been counted among critical theory. So, is then your project also something like decolonizing the German tradition of critical theory?
1: I never know if decolonizing a certain tradition is an intention that is helpful or that you know even can be followed through in this very unambiguous ways. I'm really not sure of that. But I think that the tools of Frankfurt School Critical Theory are maybe just not enough in order to understand the kinds of suffering, the kinds of pain, the kinds of catastrophes and deaths that are unfolding in the world and that are also unfolding in a changing world. And by changing, I mean changing through climate change, changing through certain economic structures, changing through the dynamics and the development of capitalism. It's not enough to think about the dialectics of enlightenment in the ways in which Adon and Horkheimer have done it and I'm not interested in widening the canon for purposes of inclusion alone or like diversity alone I'm interested in understanding racism and understanding how racism and colonialism and capitalism have always been entangled in order to build the world that we live in So I think that it is very important when we think about projects such as extending the canon or looking at, you know, other traditions of thought in these ways, that we try to do it in order to become able to look at the material circumstances that we're surrounded by in different ways, you know, like we always have to come from the concrete relationships, the economic relationships and the effective relationships that we want to understand. So I think, of course, it is about widening or extending the canon, but we have to do it. I don't think there's any other option than that.
0: In your telling, bourgeois coldness has an important function in keeping the capitalist and colonial world order going. But what is the way forward? It sounds as if just getting a little bit warmer is not the solution. What would you propose?
1: Becoming a little bit warmer is definitely not the solution. There's a very nice passage from Adorno where he says that we can't just turn on love like a heating system, but we have to come up with other ways. So I think there are, I mean, two things that I want to say about this. First is that the critique that I'm proposing is not directed towards individuals to be a little bit better. When it is a critique towards individuals, I think it's always about becoming aware (laughs) of the social conditions that allow and support their way of life. Like, this is something that I think we should all think about. But clearly the individual is in many cases or like in most cases not entitled to change these conditions of life but this has to be done on a social and collective level so I think the critique is directed towards the effective organization of bourgeois society and the possibility of being separated from the kinds of suffering that are caused by this very society and then the other thing that I want to say about this is that as a philosopher and as a critical theorist I really don't think that it is my position to propose a form of society that manages to do this but that this question has to be answered on the level of practice of course and it has to be answered on the level of political practice and collective practice and what critical theory can contribute is a critique and a very profound critique of the things that cannot stay as they are if we want to change this, if we want this to be better than it is and also just be okay
0: Enrique Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Jonas.